Hmm. I'm realizing that without Kelsey today that I have to do the intros and she always does the intros. This is very awkward. Listeners, you get to you get an inside sneak peek into into the <laughs> the pre-production. All right, let's see. Welcome to the Extra Credits podcast where we search for No, that's gross. Hold on. That's too much energy. Bring it down. Okay. Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast, where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. Wow, that was disgusting. I don't know how Kelsey does this. We don't give her enough credit, listeners. Probably just me. I don't give her enough credit. These intros are difficult. Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast. (laughs) There we go. That was more my speed. It was like a little NPR, a little Michael Barbaro. All right. So Kelsey's preparing for her PhD applications that are due very soon. So she won't be on the pod for about a month. Maybe she'll be off or on for some special movies that we're going to talk about. But for the most part, I'll have a few uh, solo pods like this one, but we are going to have some special guests. We've booked some directors, some other surprises that I think people will enjoy over the next month or so. Um, And it's going to be a lot of fun. So we just saw Ruben Usland's Triangle of Sadness, which by the way, I just found out it's Usland, not Ostland. Uh, So we've been pronouncing his name, or at least me and Kelsey have for a while. So I apologize about that. But we saw his newest film, Triangle of Sadness, a few weeks ago, and we really liked it. It's also a really complicated movie, <laughs> which is why we have not talked about it in, uh, at all over the past few weeks. It's separated into like three acts or chapters with title cards, which I think made the whole movie be- very memorable. I think a lot of people have been talking about on Twitter how odd of a movie it is. And if you're familiar with Uslan's work, you know he makes absurd satires that are obviously very provocative yet somehow still hilarious which i think is how he kind of talks to so many different communities of film lovers which is cool so i definitely recommend going to see this movie in theaters because it should be seen in theaters we need movies like this in theaters that are provocative yet still funny that can say something without being problematic um this movie definitely teeters on the ladder there and we'll we'll talk about why i think but it is also an interesting movie to see with the crowd because it's also famously gross at this point. There are, there are some very gross scenes and sequences in this movie that I'll talk about a little bit. I won't be spoiling any major plot points, though. I'm going to try to find uh, a little bit of a through line between the three acts because the themes are pretty different in each new chapter. But I do think there is some, some continuity, and we'll get into that. Here's a quick non-spoiler plot for those of you who have not seen the movie, and I think for those of you who have seen it, kind of a refresher here. In Ruben Uslan's wickedly funny Palm Door winner, social hierarchy is termed upside down, revealing the gross relationship between power and beauty. Celebrity model couple Carl, played by Harris Dickinson, and Yaya, who is the late Charles B. Dean, are invited on a luxury cruise for the uber-rich, helmed by an unhinged boat captain, played by Woody Harrelson. And I don't want to keep going because there's a pretty catastrophic ending to this third act. I don't think the trailers have spoiled it, so I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it. If you don't know Usland, he is a Swedish filmmaker. He's made other, three other films, I think, uh, starting with Play, I think almost a decade ago, then Force Majeure around 2015, and most recently, I think in 2018, The Square. Kelsey and I actually just recently watched Force Majeure, which is the only one of his films we've seen and absolutely loved it. I definitely recommend watching that for the first time or re-watching it. It's a very dark comedy about gender roles. And yeah, we loved it. I mean, everything about it was awesome. Hopefully we can talk about it on the pod one day. And all of Uslan's work, from what we understand, is kind of similar to that theme of critiques about gender roles, which this movie, Triangle of Sadness, 
is actually similar in some of its themes. And while our, I think our experience for Force Majeure a few weeks ago was kind of uncomplicated, it was like almost like an easy five stars on Letterboxd and didn't have to think about it that you know, much more after the fact. I think both Kelsey and I, as well as other critic reactions we've seen, were more mixed for different reasons. So let's, let's talk about the critics really quickly. Critics have this on Rotten Tomatoes at around 73%, whereas audiences are around 81%. So take that as you will. But Letterboxd has it about 3.9 out of 5. So the Cinephiles, about 10,000 reviews on there. That's a pretty good score. So shout out them. It's not even a wide release yet. It comes out really this week in theaters across the country. And we saw this movie in a packed Alamo theater a few weeks ago. And everyone's reaction seems to be pretty positive in that theater. Everyone was laughing after the movie. People were getting in groups and talking about the movie. Even just like coming into the theater, you were given barf bags as this kind of like side gift and you didn't realize what they were for until about the second act which was a lot to go through i do recommend everybody kind of eats and drinks anything they have in the movie in the first act because i personally had an awful experience drinking the rest of my beer uh, as this kind of first gross scene takes off and it had quite the impact on me for the rest of the movie uh so again i do recommend get all those food and drinks out after the first act okay So let's get into this movie. Let's get into these three acts, the themes, the questions Triangle of Sadness is asking the audience. I'll start with the first act, which is kind of a comment on high fashion. It explores kind of the ridiculousness of valuing appearance more than thoughts or the way our culture values beauty versus intelligence. And I thought that was interesting. So I did some prep after the fact, after we saw this kind of, you know, coming up to the pod I'm doing right now. And I found that. Usland uh, is really interested in high fashion. I guess his wife works in that field, and he uh, was reading about polls for children who were interested in like the way social media has affected them and beauty standards. And he saw a poll that children took in Sweden that showed about 85% of the kids or so were more interested in being beautiful than intelligent. And that concept, I guess, informed this script uh, for Triangle of Sadness. And the contradictions of high fashion and beauty are sort of the framework for the audience to understand the world that they're in at the beginning of this movie, which you kind of are fully invested in because it's kind of a hilarious concept. And the first act kind of lets you, I guess, slowly find your, your footing. And then by the end of the first act, you realize the movie is commenting more on gender roles and contemporary feminism and social movements. Well, at least that's the way we, you know, I guess, interpreted the end of this first act. And I think the rest of the movie and I think we really liked Uslan's Force Majeure because he was so observant and fascinated by micro-contradictions in society. He kind of makes the mundane hilarious, where some directors make the mundane beautiful, or sometimes just, you know, slow. But Triangle of Sadness has a lot more opinions on its mind, I think, than Force Majeure on the contradictions of gender roles and power dynamics in those roles. Like, obviously, Force Majeure, if you've seen the movie, it has a lot of opinions on that but not as strong as Triangle of Sadness. This one feels more heavy-handed in its thoughts. So you can kind of feel the movie treading on being like a heavy critique of something like a contemporary social movement like feminism. And I think that's where both Kelsey and I started to lose ourselves and our investment in the story because it kind of kept checking us out of the funny parts of the movie because the movie was sort of... I'm trying to say this without being too harsh because I really respect Uslan's work and I and I like his movies, and he seems like a really interesting person when I've listened to him talk. But it does seem like the movie was sort of mischaracterizing and reducing 
feminism and critiques on gender roles to something more trivial or superficial. There were still like, like I said, like a lot of funny scenes critiquing gender roles, but the movie just felt oddly contrarian in its opinions on women and men. Most of the scenes were like fully invested in kind of like these uh, critiques on superficiality and shallowness of high fashion, but they also had these kind of like these subtle uh, uh, digs at feminism, which was really, really odd. And I think my mixed feelings on the gender issues just kind of gave me a little bit of PTSD of other movies that I've liked that also had these, these, this commentary. It actually reminded me of last year's uh, Shiva Baby, Emma Seligman's film, and how that film was, by the way, just amazing. One of the most well-made movies of last year, one of my favorite films from 2021. But the movie kind of had subtle jokes or comments on contemporary feminism, specifically girl boss culture. And that was one of my favorite like movies, like I said, but it felt in moments that it was like simultaneously empowering women, but in order to empower women, it also has to dismiss other women to get its point across. And I always felt that was odd. And Kelsey too, I don't want to speak for her, but I guess that's the, you know, she has relayed that a lot. We've had a lot of conversations uh, about that kind of, what is the point of critiquing a social movement uh, if you're having to put down the people the social movement is trying to stand for? And that does become very awkward when you see that in art. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But not to go on too much of a, a tangent, it just reminded me of, of Triangle of Sadness. And there does seem to be kind of like a, maybe like a reaction in film to cancel culture and the maybe Me Too movement from some like elite classes of people working in film and the arts, especially like an upper middle class white people. Like we've all seen this on YouTube uh, or political pundits. And now in the arts, we're seeing it like people who are obviously very, very well read uh, and have sometimes borderline shallow critiques on feminism or advocacy and social movements. Uh, and they make movies that kind of have subtle commentaries on that, even if they're in a, another genre or in this movie, a satire and something else like income inequality. They'll still have these kind of jabs at uh, women's rights, which is just really odd. So to sum up the first act of Triangle of Sadness, it really focuses on the contradictions of gender roles from its perspective and the contradictions of valuing beauty more than intelligence. And that was the second part was really well done. And I think our second favorite act is probably the first act. And then the second act starts right after we kind of see this gender commentary. And this is probably our favorite chapter of the movie, the second act. We follow some of these supermodels that we meet in the first act on this vacation yacht of very wealthy people around the world. And this act focuses more on class divide. The guests on this yacht range from seemingly sweet old people who are like war profiteers to social media influencing supermodels. And on this yacht, you have Uslan kind of illustrating this very clear and explicit social class hierarchy by having these exploitative rich people on the top deck. And then below them, you have this middle class workers. And all the way at the bottom of the yacht, you have a largely non-white staff who are the caretakers of the people above. So again, a very explicit classified, which I think critics have been out on. I actually haven't found a lot of me and Kelsey's critiques on Triangle of Sadness to, to be in a lot of critical work on this movie. What I've mostly seen for people, for critics who have not liked the movie is because it's too explicit in its commentary, specifically in the yacht um, imagery, which is like this kind of like layering of, of uh, income class. and. I honestly think the yacht part of this movie uh, that's in the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything, but the yacht kind of like explicit class divide 
theme is kind of the framework for the audience to buy into the bigger ideas of the second act, because there is more there, especially toward the end of the second act, which begins, I think, with the captain, who I referenced earlier, played amazingly by Woody Harrelson, who is this self-loathing Marxist, who is hilariously the captain of a fancy yacht full of shitty capitalists and supermodels. And I think that that I think just like that plot point is really funny. Like you don't have to make it any more thematically rich. It's just that plot point in general is hilarious. But he does. I think Usland in this movie does make it more thematically interesting because they essentially make the captain become friends with a capitalist. So you have this kind of socialist and capitalist arguing and getting drunk with each other. And they turn into sort of like political ideologues on this ship. And uh, they've become distracted from taking care of the ship and have funny political banter back and forth. They're like reading Noam Chomsky and the whole, the, the whole like end of the, the second act is probably the funniest part of the movie because I think the movie is trying to convince the audience to fully buy into this hierarchy being presented on this yacht, which is like terrible wealthy people controlling the lives of everyone beneath them. But then above them, the captain who is the socialist uh, is debating with his friend, the capitalist and getting drunk and are arguing and debating about like Lenin versus Reagan while everyone beneath them is like struggling. And I think that's a, that's a funny premise. And it's a, and it's a really hilarious image. It felt very Wes Anderson-y. I think Kelsey said that. And, uh, you know, with that hilarious concept, I think, you know, it's purposely explicit without, without like a ton of nuance, because the final act is where the movie has its more complex thesis, for a lack of a better word, it's just it's kind of like argument, because I do think the movie has an argument because it is a satire. So the third and final act was our, our least favorite, I'd say. Not because it extends the movie to a long runtime, which has been some of the criticisms, or because it's slightly less funny than the previous two acts, although there are like, I would say consistently this movie is very funny. But because the third act unveils like this, this complex argument, the movie has worked so hard for audiences to buy into hierarchies as we know them today. So based on wealth, beauty, patriarchy, and then Usland kind of tips or fully flips those real class hierarchies that we're very much aware of in the audience. And he, and he flips it over and creates this fictional hierarchy where gender and wealthy roles are reversed. And there is only like a hierarchy based solely on survival in this third act where women actually rule. And it's sort of this, you know, again, a fictional hierarchy that is like, looks like a matriarchy. And the movie can then explore all of its opinions on gender roles, feminism, and class divide. So this kind of matriarchy hierarchy allows for Uslan to kind of lay out his thoughts on feminism, basically, and gender roles and the contradictions that he sees. And the movie kind of presents this hierarchy based on survival as seemingly more fair. But then in this fair hierarchy based on survival, he's kind of also arguing that there's always going to be like this oppressive oligarch running the show, even if it's a woman of color on top, which in this case it is, uh, and a woman that was just recently in the, the previous act on the bottom of this hierarchy. And of course, like there's a lot of hilarious you know, imagery and scenes and dialogue throughout this act because of that. And it's not super, you know, we don't have to be super self-serious in analyzing all of that humor. You can just laugh at it. But then it becomes a little, again, complicated because the movie's humor like like kind of like slips in some pretty cynical opinions about the gender part of it because the third act and its hierarchy sort of imply that any identity even marginalized ones who have power at the top of a hierarchy will 
sort of inevitably oppress others and create, you know, you know, seemingly uh, normal, rigid layers of inequities that they usually would have faced, but they create them regardless because they now have the power. And that that opinion is kind of very tricky that Usland is kind of like slipping into this satire because, you know, for new listeners, Kelsey and I are, are both teachers and I teach in the social sciences in high school. And we talk about institutional theories a lot, like especially the way those at the top consolidate power and they fail to redistribute this power. And that creates a lot of, you know, uh, chaos. And that's traditionally been men at the top, which, you know, which is a good starting point to explore patriarchy with students, obviously. But there are some thinkers that believe institutions are inherently toxic, no matter who is at the top. Um, And reform is just a fantasy. And uh, no matter what, these people at the top, whatever identity they are, they're going to create cycles of oppressive behavior. uh, And that'll just continue. And obviously, that's like a well understood theory or argument. I'm not kind of breaking any new news to anybody listening, but it, it often gets, I think, mischaracterized to mean something that it doesn't, those theories on, on hierarchy. Because sometimes people can straw man that concept by trying to justify their own prejudices or, you know, their bias. And in this case, the movie has that through line of its opinions on gender roles. So it kind of gets to sneak in a lot of its opinions on gender roles. And that's where the prejudice part comes into play. So I think this is where all three acts and their opinions on gender roles and feminism sort of confuse the final interesting argument about flipping hierarchy, which makes the movie less of a satire on wealth and uh, income and more of a satire on woman empowerment and feminism, which is just such an odd decision if that's what the movie's doing. Again, this is like our interpretation. I'm not saying this is fact. I'm not trying to be too heady about this. It's just the way we interpreted the movie like two weeks ago, which is why it's taken us so long to talk about it. And I think, you know, if you, if you watch the movie from that lens or at least try to see it from our perspective, you might see the literal ending of this movie sort of arguing how women can be equally as terrible as men, which is just like a really surface level understanding of gender that lacks tons of historical context that I don't really need to get into. Like, I think everyone understands that. And not to go too much on like a, like a tangent, um, and maybe we're just wrong about this, but this movie just consistently is reminding me of, you know, maybe this pattern of films that are starting to do this. Going back to my earlier conversation about, you know, Shiva Baby, I keep seeing this critique on contemporary feminism from like middle, upper middle class communities, neoliberal, whatever, uh, or even worse than that, like a Jordan Peterson-like figure, like kind of espousing these like ideas about what's wrong with feminism in the modern world, which I think a lot of us who are plugged in see those arguments and have thoughts about them. And then you see movies like Don't Worry Darling, which is kind of a reaction to that reaction of feminism, which is why I think we supported that movie because you know that reaction against feminism is very real. And recently, across like a lot of European films that I've seen, especially in Northern Europe recently, there is this like reaction to contemporary feminism and the Me Too movement and cancel culture or microaggressions in the workplace or in the household. And I've seen like a lot of observations from men in film subtly, usually about gender um, and sometimes explicitly that many gender roles in their opinion are based on some type of uh, primitive nature and that acting as if gender roles aren't based out of nature will cause chaos or anarchy. Some real like traditional ancient ideas about, about gender. 
And recently, Speak No Evil comes to mind, which is a Dutch horror film, a really well-made movie, very interesting, uh, very complex ending. I'd love to talk about that one day. But there is a lot of uneasy commentary in it about gender roles. And I think that reminds me of Triangle of Sadness. With Kelsey, I think it did too. Which ultimately, it's sort of a critique on the ways humans try to be civilized. I think both um, Speak No Evil and Triangle of Sadness is just kind of critiquing the way that human beings are trying to uh, become more equitable and trying to reform hierarchies. And I don't know, the movies, both Triangle of Sadness and Speak No Evil, feel like ultimately they're trying to say that we're all just animals and we're trying to survive. And those nature-based arguments in art always seem to be like very uncomfortable to me like always very contrarian, like they're coming from men trying to push buttons who feel uncomfortable seeing their role in society questioned, even like very well-intentioned men who have like had interesting movies like, like Usland. And when I see arguments or commentary critiquing social movements like this in film, even subtly, like in Triangle of Sadness, I always assume it's because like some man was inspired to make a movie or write a book or a manifesto because they felt wronged by a woman, which we've seen throughout history, of course. And that always comes off to me more as like sad. And I could still find humor in whatever that person is trying to do in their art, but it's ultimately very sad in whatever their thesis is because it just lacks any kind of, any kind of curiosity or anything interesting intellectually to me. And anyways, and, you know, without going too much on a tangent here about the kind of like the, the critique on the gender role observations in these movies, and saying all that about my problems with Triangle of Sadness's themes or ideas, it's still a very good mov- movie. It's obviously interesting to talk about. I can't wait to rewatch it because Usland is, like I've said, so observant and really picks at these minor contradictions that I think every you know, audience member finds at least, the very least, fascinating. I, I don't think anyone needs to spend too much time overly critiquing his movies, but I will say... If we're going to spend millions of dollars to make movies, y'all, anybody's listening who makes movies, do we really need to critique social movements like for marginalized identities? Like, I know we can all pinpoint contradictions and it's fun, fun to push the red button, especially if you're like a privileged dude. But like, can we just like not do that? <laughs> Aren't there more interesting things to talk about in our movies? I don't, I don't know. Obviously, people can talk about whatever they want in their movies. But sometimes I'm like, there are so many more... Um, you know, there's so many more people who need help in commentary rather than, you know, trying to put down people who are already marginalized. So it's so interesting when that happens. But regardless, I'd love to pick Usland's brain. He's obviously a very, you know, interesting person. We're actually in the, currently in the process of getting him on the podcast. And, uh, you know, aside from scheduling conflicts, we're kind of just still unclear how we feel about the movie and still parsing it out. So I want to make sure we have that together, even though multi, you know, Ultimately, I think our conversation would be more about his career and his interests more than anything. I just want to make sure we have, you know, our bearings about this movie. Okay, does this movie deserve extra credit? I'm going to say yes, not because I necessarily agree with everything that is, you know, being said in this movie, but because of the second act. And I would like to see more satires in theater because when they're done effectively, they're a lot of fun. They raise tons of interesting questions and observations about our social world. And it kind of reminds me of our most recent podcast, Tar, which was interestingly another movie that has like satirical threads running through it, maybe not as uh, explicitly a satire as Triangle of Sadness. And it's definitely not as much of a laugh out loud, funny watch or what people might consider a traditional satire. 
But in Tar, there are these like heightened elements more adjacent to Fight Club that subvert the audience to make its argument or ask questions about contemporary issues. Like I think when people first leave the theater with Tar, they're probably reflecting on this bleak character mystery with Lydia Tar and the commentary of the Me Too movement and cancel culture that are very relevant. But the movie functions in like this more heightened, nightmarish way to also explore the value we give to art and artists or just people with power and how that's often connected to absolving those powerful people because we hold them up as pieces of elitist culture or status or art. So I recommend people go see Tar. And in the future on our podcast, you'll, you'll hear some more solo pods of movies are going to be seeing soon, maybe like Decision to Leave or others coming out. And Kelsey will be on a few, I'm sure, over the next month. And we're going to have a lot of fun guests on, like I said at the top. We're going to be having a Ridley Scott podcast uh, very soon about God, <laughs> uh, which will be, I think, you know, on par with the kind of conversations we have on this podcast. And we're going to have some guests on for that one. It'll be a lot of fun. And we're also going to, uh, well, right now we're watching a lot of Steven Spielberg movies. So we're kind of having a Steven Spielberg marathon. And my guy, Steve, makes some really long movies. And it's getting, taking us a while to get through all of those, even though a lot of them are very good. And we're going to be guesting on some other pods talking about Spielberg. And I'll, I'll be pointing listeners in that direction to listen to those. And the last thing that I'll say on our podcast that we have coming out very soon uh, that I'm very excited about is a live watch. I won't spoil what that live watch is going to be. It'll be out very soon. And uh, let's just say the listeners got what they wanted in the vote for who, what movie we're going to do, do because Kelsey's going to be scared and that's going to be a ton of fun. <laughs> okay. This has been the extra credits of Triangle of Sadness and this has been Trey. Peace. It's the only thing that